Father, so thankful for your love for us and so grateful, God, for the word. I pray, God, that you help us and, Father, that you would uh, use us, Lord, uh, for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We would turn to Deuteronomy 4. We're pressing through this today, man. We're getting it. Does anybody not have a handout that I handed out from uh, two weeks ago when we last were able to meet? Anybody need one here? Okay, just want to make sure. Again, some of the information, I left the top open so that you could take some notes. But some of the information that we're going to have, there you go. Some of the information that we're going to have, here you go, uh, is because of a large study sheet that I'm going to have for you guys. Of course, we won't be doing it next week because of the uh, annual business meeting that we have. But the weekend after that, the Sunday that is after that, uh, I'm going to have a large 11 by 17 page for you guys because we're going to talk about both what inclusios are and also what chiasms are in the scriptures. Uh, it's very important. And if that's something that you find amazing and interesting in order to work with, that is only about, uh, I don't know, a, a tenth or a twelfth of what the hermeneutics class is going to be like uh, in September is identifying those things. So uh, if we can, Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses is wrapping up the historical prologue that he is bringing to these people. And the way that he's doing it is, is he is referring them back to Evidences and history of two things. Number one, God's faithfulness. Number two, the dangers of their disobedience. Very important stuff. Do you need a pen, Tabitha? Okay. You did the pen motion, so just making sure. I have a crayon. I think I did most of my master's work in crayon. Anyway. Um, so what I want to do is I want to go to chapter four. We're going to start in verse 10. And the goal here is to press through to get to uh, verse 21. And if we can get from 10 to 21, and I know we're going slow through Deuteronomy, and I know it's going to take us until 2045 to get through with the book. But the reason is, is because no one, just real quick, I'm curious, who here has really read intently or studied Deuteronomy before we started this Sunday school class? That's why we're going slow. Okay, that's our relationship to the Old Testament. And if you understand Deuteronomy, this is no lie. If, if you were forced in a position where you had a minimum of, of, of what you needed in order to get your information about all of the Old Testament, Genesis and Deuteronomy would be the top two books that you would need to look at. Genesis, because God is the creator, man is a creature, God, man has sin, needs a redeemer. We learn all that from Genesis. Deuteronomy, because it sets up the precedence for how all of Israel is to operate from here all the way into the time of Jesus. Remember, in first century uh, Jerusalem, first century Israel, they're still operating under the law. The law has to do with the covenant that God makes with Moses, the Mosaic covenant. And the Mosaic covenant is a, if you do this, then I will do this covenant. It's conditional. It's not regardless of what you do, I'm going to see things through with flying colors all the time because I'm accomplishing my purposes. That's, that's the Abrahamic covenant, Davidic covenant, all those things. That is not the, the conditional covenant of Moses. Does that make sense to everybody? I know that's a lot of like Christianese jargon I'm throwing out there. If anybody is not clear, let me know. Okay, verse 10. 
Remember the day you stood before Yahweh, your Elohim, at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me, that I may... Now watch this. If you underline, this event that happened in Exodus 20 is so important to understand because Moses constantly refers back to it. That I may let them hear my words, audibly hearing the Creator speak, so that they may, number one... Learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth. And two, that they may teach their children. Have you ever gone to discipline your child and you thought, I'm going to put the fear of God into this kid? You ever thought that? Why? Why would you ever come? I mean, of course you say that today, you're abusive. But if you were going to do that, why? What does it accomplish? Maybe you'll remember it obedience that's what you're looking for that idea didn't start with us it started here with god i am going to reveal myself to israel and talk to them personally in such a way that they are to never forget who i am in their lives now Put your finger here, your notes here real quick. If you want to write in the margin of this Deuteronomy section, I want you to turn back. I want to show you just one thing real quick. Exodus 20. Exodus 20 is pivotal in understanding what's going on here. Exodus 20 is where we get the Ten Commandments. We call them commandments, but they're actually called to the Hebrew ten words. The ten words. God needed only ten sentences in order to run an entire society. That should tell us something about the law books, okay? So here's the thing. Verses 1 through 17, he communicates the 10 words, the 10 commandments, okay? Verse 18, we have a shift. He's done telling them. Remember, he speaks audibly from the mountain. Notice what it says here, verse 18. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Verse 19. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself. The people say this to, the, to, to Moses, okay? Speak to us yourself and we will listen. Now watch this. But let not God speak to us or we will what? Now God just got done speaking to them and they didn't die, Okay. Was Israel a little bit on the dramatic? Maybe, maybe. But the point is, is the thrust behind what they're getting. If God ever speaks to us again like that, we might as well count our lives as loss. Now, I don't know if anybody's ever spoke to you and you thought, you know what, if I have another conversation with that person, I'm going to die. And not in like a, I can't handle this person, I want to choke on myself kind of thing. Or I just assume die, then listen to this person. That's how we take it today. The idea is, if they speak to me, I am so unworthy to be spoken to by that person that you might as well count my life as loss. This is talking about an extreme moment of impression that has been emblazoned upon their minds. It, it is, it is, a, it is a, uh, not, in a, not in a tragic way, it is a cataclysmic moment that should change everything in how they view life. God has spoken to us kind of thing. So verse 20, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, which I think is great because Moses talked with God a lot, right? Do not be afraid for God has come in order to test you. Notice this. 
in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not what? Notice that. Everybody see how the language is the same. I spoke to you so that you would fear me, so that the fear of God would be in you because there's one thing I don't want you doing, sinning. And if I can reveal myself to you in such a way to leave such an impression on you that makes you think twice about committing a sin, it's worth it. This goes to show you just how horrible sin is. You see how that works? This kind of gives you the magnitude, the the lengths that God is willing to go to just to impress people in such a way as to keep them from sinning. So back to Deuteronomy chapter 4. So notice the two things. I let you hear my words that you may, number one, learn to fear me all the days you live on the earth, and number two, that they may teach their children. In other words, it's to be a generational thing. It is something to be trickling down through the family. There is to be a track record of you passing it on to your kids. This is vitally important today. If you've ever been, oh, about some of the sins that your kids have committed, and I understand, children do dumb things. I was a children once, and I did dumb things, right? It is. It is. It's proper grammar in Kentucky. But a good question to ask yourself is, did the child feel that that was okay or was willing to test that direction because the discipleship process at home was broken? Did I share with my son who God is and what he has done? That's the basic building block. My, my child knows the name Jesus, but he really right now, being almost two, doesn't need to know anything beyond, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Why? Because that is a foundation that the Bible sets to correct our thinking. The one thing he needs to know growing up, there is a God, he made everything. We are answerable to him. He is over all of us, regardless of what, you know, I can't wait till I get to the point where I say, well, God made me your daddy. I can't wait for that moment. He made me your daddy to discipline you so that I can constantly point you to him. There is a right. There is a wrong. There is a truth. There is a lie. And God sets those standards, drawing all parenting back to who God is and how we see him working with people in order to discipline them, teach them, train them. Cause them to fear him. Why? So that they will not sin. So that they will be corrected from doing wrong. So it says here, verse 11, you came near. Notice that. You came near. You approached Yahweh. It's personal is the idea. It's intimate. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain. And the mountain burned with fire. And the very heart of the heaven, to the very heart of the heavens, darkness, cloud, and thick gloom in other words uh thick darkness was over everything it was an awesome and captivating sight everybody who says that god is only light there is no darkness in him i believe there's a psalm that refers to that but you have to put it in context god uses darkness he's not just revealed just in light only and darkness is bad sometimes we put up the little you know finger crucifix like oh it's bad kind of thing like that no no he uses it in order to get attention 
Verse 12, then Yahweh spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words. Now, this is so important. Please grasp this. Notice he's referring back to this audible event. You heard the sound of words, but what? What's he bring attention to? Saw no form. Pay attention, okay? Only a voice. Now, look what he says next. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, to apply it. That is the ten words, the ten commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. Now let me hit down to verse 15. We'll go back and we'll break it apart because I want you to see this. The Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might perform them. Notice, not just doctrine, but also application. Not just learning, but also doing. Notice that, that you are to perform in the land that which you are going over to possess it, to inherit it. So, verse 15, watch yourselves carefully. Notice it's a warning. Since you did not see any what? Any form. On the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire. Why do you believe that Moses puts an emphasis on hearing the voice and seeing no form? He brings it up twice, and yet he constantly is lifting up the idea of, you heard his voice, you heard him audibly speak. Why is that? Why do you think that is? Okay, so it's it's totally in line with the idea of having no other gods before me. You're getting real close. You're, you're dancing around it. The, the danger of graven images, because that's how Egypt worshipped, right? And that's how Canaan worships. That's how the Hittites. We're always looking for something to stick up and, and, and praise it. Just seeing God, you would die, yes. Actually, we go on further. He's everywhere, and he knows when you sin all the time. If we all really believed in the omnipresence of God, we would, we would live completely different lives. He sees everything. And here's the amazing thing is, apart from the blood of Christ, can you imagine someone who is not a believer in Jesus having to come before God, and he says, okay, so we're here, and I've got the books with everything that you've ever done to see whether or not you merit a righteousness that will get you into heaven. Why should I let you in? I mean, we'd be turning our pockets inside and out looking for the healthiest piece of lint we could find to try to offer up there. Because we know we're in trouble. We don't have that pardon. The blood is a pardon from that situation. Such a big deal. But Roxanne, you said something in particular. What'd you say? As far as why, why, is, there, why is there a de-emphasis on, on, or why is there you saw no form, but you heard his words? It is the word, the power of his voice. It is what he says. Everything centers around his word. Why does he want you to have a form? Because he doesn't want you worshiping something that has been put together in our mind as what is going to be a solid misrepresentation of his perfection. I'm not a big fan of pictures of Jesus. He's always got the clear seal skin. It's always as white as can be, the flowing Vidal Sassoon hair that has some sort of product in it, 
right? The spotless robes are usually red and blue and white's on there. His sandals are all looking good. His feet are all nice and shiny. You had funky feet in the first century. That's why they always had to be washed when you went into somebody's house. It was a gross job. People didn't have socks. Imagine with me. You see what I'm saying? But so many people represent Jesus as he is not. And it's very interesting, this command, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall make for yourself no graven image, either in heaven above or on the earth or under the earth beneath. Get this. No human, no mammal, no amphibian, whatever it is, no celestial being is to have any sort of form whatsoever. You don't need an object for your worship is the idea. All you need is my word. That's what he's getting at. Don't worry about trying to figure out what I look like. Worry about what I've said to you. That's a big difference. I mean, let's be honest, and I'm not trying to sound blasphemous, but if Yahweh looked like the jolly green giant, would you still pay attention to his word? You see what I'm saying? Anytime that, if you read Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel tries to give you what God looks like, and he tries but can't. All I know is that from the waist up, he looks like flaming fire, and from the waist down, he looks like gleaming light. That doesn't help us at all, does it? It just says, wear your sunglasses if you meet God. I mean, it's, it's bright, shining, brilliant, amazing, blazing. You, you can't grasp it. But what do we need to be most concerned about? His word. That's what he wants them to get. Hold fast to my word. Why? Because his word is reflective of his character. And here's the thing. If he's wrong in his word, he's wrong all the way through. doesn't matter what he looks like or not. That's really important. Really important. Notice it all boils down to belief and unbelief. Do you believe his word? So look back also here. uh, Verse 13, he declared to you his covenant. And this is the Mosaic covenant which he commanded you to perform. It has to be applied. In fact, I would go as far as to say that when we read God's word and we know about it, if we do not apply it, we do not have God's word. I will tell you that. We'll actually go through that in hermeneutics uh, starting in September. Everybody needs to be a part of that, the hermeneutics class. If you do not apply God's word, you do not have God's word. Because God's word was meant to be applied, not to fill heads, but to change hearts, change lives. So notice here, verse 13, to perform it, that is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone, right? And we all get the picture of Charlton Heston coming down from the mountain, holding the big tablets of stone, right? Why two tablets? Why? Because the commandments were just so big, you couldn't get them all on one? Is that why? Okay, there's the do's and the do not. So we got one do tablet and one do not tablet. Okay. One has to do with how we interact with God. One has to do with how we interact with man. What else we think? Two tablets. Well, it could be the idea of dividing between. No. Because Moses had two arms and so wanted to make sure he wasn't just doing this the whole time. Sideways? Say it again. One is for God and one is for us. That's the reason why. It's a contractual agreement. 
See, what makes the Mosaic Covenant different from the Abrahamic Covenant, remember Abraham cut the animals in the middle, laid them on the sides, and then God put him to sleep. And only the presence of God passed him between the pieces. That's like the handshake, right? And the whole idea is if I fail to fulfill what I have promised you this day, then may what has been done to these animals and cutting them and put out like that, may that happen to me for failing to fulfill it. This is completely different. This is a conditional covenant saying, you do your part, I will do mine. Now, we make, and I've used this example before, you make that deal with the bank when you buy a house, right? You will give me the money so I can purchase it from this person and I agree to pay it back to you with this much. What happens if you don't pay? Exactly. It costs you something. You don't do your part, they're not going to do their part. It's going to cost you something. And they will sometimes, if you're delinquent, go, now, if you'll refer back to your contract that you signed with the bank, why are they telling you that? Because they have it right in front of you and they're re- or in front of them and they're reading it. They'll tell you exactly what the stipulations are. Well, if God knows everything, why would he need it? Because it's a testimony. It is an agreement they're coming into. I know it. You know it. Don't forget it. That's what he's saying to Israel. So notice, one for each party involved. Both tablets are the same thing. And each, each, each party involved gets a copy. Everybody's in the know, the agreement. Everybody is knowledgeable. Because here's what we do when we get caught with our hand in the cookie jar. Well, I just didn't know. Don't we make that excuse? Well, God, I, don't, I, I wasn't really doing like, I, you know, I kind of maybe thought it for a second. But, and we are excuse machines. This eliminates all excuses. So he says here, verse 15, notice how he, he warns them. So watch yourselves carefully, since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire. Pause. Does anybody remember what Aaron said whenever he took all the gold from the people that they had plundered from the Egyptians and he melted it and made a golden calf out of it? Does anybody remember what he said the very next moment? What's that? They made me do it. Well, he said that to God. But he said, behold, Israel, the one who has delivered you from Egypt. He took a graven image and he attributed it to represent Yahweh who had delivered them. Now, see, that's interesting because where his intentions may be good, possibly, should he have been creating idols? No, but it's real easy for us to sit back and look at that and say it. What environment had he come out of? Egypt is full of idols. It's just how they do things. And notice, the best representation he could come up with God when he thought about it was a cow. You see what I'm saying? This goes to show you the futility of what it is for us to attempt to make some sort of representation of God when really what Aaron needed to be most concerned with was his word, not his image. Maybe Aaron had good motives in doing it, but notice that it failed miserably. It was, it was, it was a horrible display. And he attributed credit. This is, this is the God. Let's worship him as a representation of God. No, let's just focus and meditate on his word and let that be about what renews our minds is the difference. Verse 16, here's the reason. So that, remember his voice, so that you do not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourselves. In the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, this, the likeness of any winged bird, 
that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water below the earth. God is spirit. He's to be worshiped in spirit and truth, not with a substitute for him. Does everybody notice verse 16, that you don't act corruptly? Make any figure in the likeness of, notice it goes through the hierarchy of creation, male and female first, right? No male or female type statutes that you think are going to represent God. But notice then it goes to the animals of the earth, the winged birds, the things that creep on the ground, or any fish in the water. Everything that God created. In other words, don't get your eyes focused on the creation. Keep them on the word of the creator. Now, everybody put your notes here. Turn over to Romans 1. Romans chapter 1. You're probably familiar with this, but that's okay. Repetition never hurt us. Chapter 1 of Romans, verse 18. Actually, let's do 16 and let's talk a little bit about it. I'll probably say something that if you think hard about it, it'll blow your mind and then you'll want to go read Romans and that's always a good thing. Verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, already believing. Already believing people need to get saved. It's right there, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness is revealed, get that. From faith to faith, that is written, the righteous man shall be saved by faith. Is that what it says? No, it's not talking about going to heaven when you die. It's talking about how you live your life. And the righteousness of God being revealed saves you from a worthless life. That's the point here. Or what is known in Romans as the wrath of God. It saves you from his wrath. You can be saved and his wrath still be upon you. Why? Because we still sin and we still do messed up stuff. That's why. So hopefully that'll give you a little tidbit to hold on to. And if you want to study out Romans a little bit more and pay attention to the use of salvation and wrath and where it is and where it's not in the book, it's good. But here's what I want to show you. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed. Notice, for the wrath of God is revealed. Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Everybody see those parallels there? They're opposites. Notice this. For the wrath of God is revealed, presently speaking, it is revealed revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, our attempt to cover up the truth. This scientific idea that evolution somehow trumps creation because it's not from the Bible is the most ridiculous thing that people have swallowed hook, line, and sinker. Either because they truly believe it which is the most ridiculous concoction I've heard, or because they're forced to believe it because if they don't believe it, they won't get any grant money and can't continue to to live in their field. That's where people are at now. If you don't affirm evolution, you don't get any money. That's where we're at. Move on here. Verse 19, why are they suppressing this truth? Why do they suppress it with unrighteousness? Because that which is known about God is what? Evident within them or evident among them. For God made it evident to them. God has taken the steps to make himself known to people. 
Everyone is without excuse, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without defense, without excuse. No one can ever sit here and say, I didn't know that God existed. Everybody look outside. Is it bright? How's it bright? The sun. Did you put the sun there? No. Do you think that we could have put the sun there if we tried? No. So obviously somebody else did. Somebody or something else did. That's what gets the ball rolling. Critical thinking about your environment and the design involved points one direction. There is a almighty designer over these things. So notice, he's made himself evident. He's made the invisible things about him visible so that we are without an excuse. We can never say, I didn't know. It's right there in front of us. Notice verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became what? We're smart guys. That's what you hear, right? Because somebody has so many PhDs after their name, they're the smart guys. No, you've actually become a fool because you're denying the very source of truth. He says here, verse 23, and exchange, here's what they exchange. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God. That's what they could have paid attention to, the glory of the incorruptible God, unable to be tainted or thwarted in any way. For a what? What's it say? An idol or what? An image. An idol. An image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and of crawling creatures. Isn't that everything that Moses just warned them about in Deuteronomy? If you, if you submit yourself to idols, being in the representation of created things, you're actually forfeiting the opportunity to experience the glory of the Creator. That's the idea. Idolatry is serious. And we may not be wandering around in some wilderness right now in, in this ancient civilization. Our idols are just as bad today. Don't pretend like they're not. We just hide them a little bit better. Or they become more commonly accepted than some. Back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 4, verse 19. We'll finish up. Uh, let's see, right here, we've got three more verses. You guys are patient. The Lord loves patience. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Verse 19. So he tells them, don't worship any created thing. But this is interesting. And beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars. All the host of heaven... All the host of heaven is angels, or could very well be fallen angels, demons, either one, the hosts. When we talk about the Lord of hosts, we're talking about the Lord of all the angels that were created. It says here, the host of heaven and be drawn away. Notice how specific that is, drawn away and to worship them and serve them, those which Yahweh your Elohim has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Think about what he's saying. This is exactly how idolatry starts. You're drawn away, you worship them, and then you serve them. He gives you a progression. But we're not just talking about the created things on earth that we see. We're talking about the things that are unseen. Un, uh, excuse me, unseen. Astrology? Yes? Horoscopes? I'm a Taurus. Right? Chinese zodiacs, whatever you want to call it. Everybody is all into this mythical junk. They think that somehow it's connected to crystals. You ever talk to anybody that believes in crystals? 
not the food place crystals, actual like crystals. Like they'll rub them on their skin to heal things and they'll go to weird shops. Anybody seen any? No? You guys need to get out more. You guys need to go hang out in Madison more, man. You guys need to go to some of these shops down there and see what the college kids are into. It's freaky, man. It's, it's crazy stuff. And they really believe this stuff. That they, and here's what's crazy is, you can tell they're searching desperately. There's some kind of mystical, spiritual power out there. And I know it's out there, so I'm clawing and I'm looking for it in order to give my life meaning and reassurance and help. And there's divine guidance and all this stuff. And you find out all it is is essentially it's demonic and it's paganism put together. Fortune tellers. Sometimes we get all tripped up on fortune cookies, don't we? Unless you get the one that says, help, I'm trapped in a fortune cookie factory or whatever. You know, today someone will smile at you and it'll make your day. What do we do the rest of the day? We're looking for that person. We are a superstitious lot, man. We are. We get all messed up with that stuff. How about Ouija boards? Those things are evil. They're messed up. Pawns of Satan, man. And here's the thing. He's the master deceiver. Everything he wants to do is get our eyes on an image, no matter what it is. Get it on an image and get it away from the Word. The Word renews the mind, but the image is appealing because it comes in through the eye and it takes up residence in the heart. Why do we have such a problem with pornography today in our society? Because guys are gross. Is that why? Because we're all just a bunch of animalistic beings who can't help our carnal desires and therefore we have to kill and conquer and destroy. Is that why it is? Is that what it is? It's because we're all chauvinists and women are just pieces of meat to be thrown around and do our bidding and that. Is that why it is? What do you think? Why is pornography such a problem? Men are visual creatures. But did you know that in the last thing I saw was 10 years ago, 40% of women were looking at pornography 10 years ago. I'd be curious to see what it is now. Does it freak you out that something's got such a stranglehold on our society? I read an article in the New York Times about what does pornography do to kids in middle school and high school. You'd be amazed at some of the things that those kids are thinking and speaking under uh, anonymity to this reporter about. It's insane. It's insane. I looked over at my wife after I got in reading. I said, we have to protect our child. Period. It's incredible. This is how some, a lot of guys are learning how it is to treat women now. It's through pornography. And pornography over the past 15 years has become increasingly violent in the interactions between the actors because that's what sells. Does this tell you something about our society? Notice that pornography is an image. It's really not about the word, is it? It's not about the words that are used. It's about the images that are portrayed. It's idolatry. It is, it, is a, it is a subtle deception by Satan in order to cast people's minds into the gutter. Don't, don't be fooled by this stuff, man. People are, people are twisted up in this. Some polls that I've seen in conferences where, where pastors, pastors' conference, where they're filling out stuff and turning it in uh, on a completely anonymous basis. And you find out that 45% of the pastors in attendance at a conference are struggling with pornography in some way. And they're responsible for being the shepherds of leading their congregations faithfully to worship before an almighty God all the time. And they're caught in this deception. It's insane. It is insane. And it doesn't take much strolling along in order to find something nowadays on the internet. 
or on Twitter or on Facebook or something that will lead you somewhere. It's idolatry. Satan uses it to get our minds completely off of how we think about God. Completely distorts what he's created as good to make it evil. It's so dangerous. So notice, it's the same type of idea. Verse 20, But Yahweh has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace. Notice that. Um, some translations will say out of the uh, crucible. Anybody got crucible in there? Is out of the crucible? Nobody, nobody has it? Some translations will say crucible in there. It's the idea of, uh, of some, uh, like a kiln that you would use to refine metal or glass. And it's taking you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for his own possession today. In other words, Israel is Yahweh's inheritance. Just as Yahweh has provided for Israel to inherit the land, in that same way, Israel is Yahweh's inheritance. Now think about that. The God of all things deems a nation of people to be the treasured possession that is a privilege for him to be owner of. That's very, very beyond what I can possibly think. Um, Verse 21, Now, the Lord was angry with me on your account and swore that I would not cross the Jordan, that I would not enter the good land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. What is that in verse 21? We've seen it before, twice. What is that? What is he talking about? What is Moses talking about there? Talking about him hitting the rock the second time when he was told to speak to the rock. Everybody remember that incident? Why does Moses bring it up again? To remind the people that that one disobedience, not to an image, but to God's word, costs him inheritance. Now I want to show you something real quick, and you can read the rest of your notes on this and start to try to piece it together, but I'm really jazzed in two weeks for Sunday school when we will look at this together. If you look at 421 and then turn back to 326. Chapter 326, we'll finish here. But the Lord was angry with me on your account and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough, speak to me no more of this matter. Everybody see, the Lord was angry with me on your account. Yes? Chapter 421, now the Lord was angry with me on your account. This is what is known as an inclusio in Scripture. An inclusio is a phrase that is used by the author in order to set up bookends because he is saying to you this is a unit of thought and so I'm going to kick it off with this phrase and I'm going to shore it up with this phrase and you know that everything in the middle is trying to communicate a great point. Now here's the interesting part of it. It's not just an inclusio but if you take your notes and you turn it around to the other side and you can read about what an inclusio is there. It's also what's known as a chiasm. A chiasm is that there is a central point that the author wants to communicate to you. And so like we today would write something significant and we would go exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, and we'd get really dramatic about our sentence, what we want them to get, or we underline it or boldface it. Okay, Moses isn't working with Microsoft Word, okay? So what they have to do is come up with some sort of literary device in order to communicate to us what the stress of the situation is. What is the big thing that he wants to pop us with so that we don't forget the idea. And so what he does is, is he creates these bookends, known as inclusios, and then he creates a chiasm. In other words, if you take the bookends and you start working your way in, you will find that concepts correspond with one another 
until you get to a middle point. And the middle point is what he wants to communicate. So in two weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to take 326 to 421 on an 11 by 17 piece of paper. And I'm going to have the Elmo here, the overhead projector. And I'm going to show you guys how to identify these things and work themselves backwards so that you can find the central point. These things are all over John's writings especially. But this is super ultra nerdy stuff, okay? So bring your, your nerd glasses and your pocket protector and all kinds of fun stuff, your ruler and your, your abacus or whatever, and, and we will go through and we will figure all that stuff out. Any questions about what we've covered in Deuteronomy now before we leave? The big application for this is don't be worried about forms and images. They're evil, okay? No one is ever going to encapsulate the Lord Jesus Christ in the way he should be or the representation of God. What we need to be most concerned with is his word. That's what we need to be concerned with. Let's pray. God, thank you for our time in Deuteronomy. Thank you, God, for blessing it. Praying, Father, for you to constantly bring it to our minds. We need to be about your word. We need to be about everything that you have said. Keep it fresh in our minds. May the word dwell richly in us, and may we especially spend quality time in it this week. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, everybody.